0: Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to sheerclarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey everyone, this is Kevin McHugh, the host of Sheer Clarity. Welcome to another episode. This is the podcast where we talk about business leaders and people who've learned to lead by attraction. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, within seconds of meeting this kind of leader, people believe they can trust you and they are safe to be honest with you. There's no hidden agendas. They also have a sense, energetically, that you intensely care about them and about others. And I believe this all starts with you having sheer clarity about who you are and how you roll, because that's going to determine how you lead. If you'd like to know more, visit sheerclarity.com, and you can also visit my website at jkevinmchugh.com. My guest today is Walt Rakowicz. Walt is a former CEO of Prologis. It's a New York stock exchange company. They're a member of the S&P 500. Big distribution facilities around the world, in the Americas, Europe, and Asia, and he was there and on the board of directors since June of 2011 through 2012 he was the CEO there from 2008 to 2011 he's a member of the board of trustees he's got a tremendous resume lots of things happening i did note that he was on the advisory council of gender fair maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and he's also was appointed to the Pennsylvania State University Penn State let's go state on the board of trustees he was also named a Penn State alumni fellow which is lifetime designation of achievement. Right now, he's serving as the chairman of the board of Colorado Uplift and as a member of the board of the Alliance of School Choice and Education. He's also had several appearances on CNBC, CNN, Fox, Bloomberg, and National Public Radio. And he also is the author of a book called Transfluence How to Lead with Transformative Influence in Today's Climates of Change. I hope we'll get to talk about the book. I have actually read it and I loved it. I felt like I was talking to myself and it was the book I should have written. So I'm jealous. So welcome to the show, Walt. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Kevin. Great to be on. And thank you for your compliment on the book. It was fun writing it.
0: It's outstanding. It jumped out. And I'll give you sort of a prelim because the thing that, I mean, a lot of things caught my eye, but the thing that caught my eye right at the beginning, and I'll make sure we don't rabbit hole this. We'll come back to it. But guidepost number two, It says, storms rage from deep within us, and confronting them is painful. And I have to tell you that that cuts to the core. That's what sheer clarity was about. It's basically a business person's orientation to the psychological dimensions of stuff that's going on in the emotional intelligence world. You know, they make a pyramid and at the bottom is self-awareness. And then if you know that, then you know how to regulate yourself. And then finally, when you have that all sorted out, maybe you might have some empathy and ability to care about others but if you've got raging storms within you, and so that caught my eye and the rest of the chapter on it does it well. Actually, the next several chapters unpack that. So we'll come back to it. So let's start at least with like, what are you doing today? Like, what is your day job or your day life? I know you're on a couple of boards, what have you, but just remind me again, what keeps you busy and motivated and active?
1: So I left the company about eight years ago And I was at the ripe old age of 55 and I wanted to retire. I had read a book, maybe some of your listeners have read it. It's called Halftime, written by Bob Buford. And and it was an inspiration to me to think about what the quote unquote second half of my life would look like. And I had left, as you said, as a CEO of a New York Stock Exchange company. And I knew that I couldn't just go play golf. And I had a really interesting meeting with a guy who had also retired in his mid fifties. And he said, you know, Walt, I encourage you to think about how you break up your day. And I ended up going a third, a third, a third. And so I spend a third of my time still in business, mostly on boards of directors of three New York stock exchange companies. I spend at least a third and probably more like closer to 50% of my time giving back. Through what I consider, in some respects, charitable causes, and in other respects, just simply giving back to the world, one way or the other. Things I don't get paid for, if you will, but I get paid for through intrinsically feeling good about the progress that these organizations are making. And then finally, I probably spend a third of my life having a little bit more fun, honestly, having margin in my life. As you know, one of the problems that you have when you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, as you do as a C-suite executive in most companies, is that you have no time for other people. And the one thing I really have appreciated about the last eight years of my life is I have more margin to spend time with people. I spend time with friends, with friends' children. I spend time on podcasts like this with guys (laughs) like you, just trying to impart a little bit of the wisdom that I learned in my life. And that's really important to me.
0: It's beautiful. I am a halftime alumni myself. I did that in 2010. I also subsequently worked with a coach by the name of Jeff Spadafora. I actually put myself in a cabin for a week in Colorado and did every day. We did like four hours of work and it was life-changing because not only did it accelerate my self-awareness, got me connected with my Christianity and my relationship with God. And I happen to believe they go together. It's, it's a secular, spiritual kind of paradigm. and. You'll hear more about it in the months to come because I'm getting ready to blast it out there over the uh, podcast. It's just going to go bold or go home, right? <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> well, That's interesting you'd say that because Jeff Spatafora is a really good friend of mine. As you know, I live in Denver, Colorado. Oh, that's right. That's... I'm calling in right now from Naples, Florida, where I live in the wintertime. But in the summertime, in the fall, there's no better place than Colorado. Oh, yeah. And, um, and Jeff and I have actually become friends over the years. So East oh, Rift.
0: my God. Small world. Wait. He's a great guy. So, look, look, you are the quintessential definition to me of what I, as a 25 or 30-year-old, was thinking I was supposed to be one day. The big CEO, the big Fortune 500 kind of guy, and I got all wound up and was supposed to do that. And the thing I learned early was if you're going to do that, you're going to devote a lot of your life to that, and that means less for your family. And my travels got bigger and bigger and bigger. And at an early stage, I did made a decision. I'm just not going to do it. And I ended up with closely held businesses. They're smaller in size, but you know what? Emotions and politics doesn't matter. Fortune 500 or mom and pop, (laughs) same stuff. And I found that in your book that you address it. You know, you talk about it. It's just that the game is a little more sophisticated. I I think when you get in the Fortune 500 world, we hide it a lot more. There's a feeling of gravitas and protocol and whatever floor the building is on where all the big C guys and women sit, you know. It actually, when you step off the elevator as a younger person, you go, whoa, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I remember that. I just remember that vividly. But what I enjoyed when I met you was that you haven't let it get to you. I would love to know if maybe you start at the beginning a little bit and tell me about your life growing up. I have a belief that, you know, these early childhood lives we live are filled with imprinting and some of it good, maybe some of it not so good, you know, but I always like to hear you tell your story about just growing up i'd be happy to do it first of all let me just say that
1: my role models were my parents my mother and dad my mother's mother and dad came over from italy and my mother was born the year that they came to the united states and neither of them could speak english and my dad's mother and father came over from poland and from white russia and he was born in the united states but both of them had very humble beginnings. My dad, in fact, through the age of 15, my dad lived in a one-bedroom apartment with his mother and dad and sister, and they owned a grocery store in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we did not grow up with a wealth of money, to be candid with you. My, my dad ended up being an, an assistant manager at a Kmart, and my mother cleaned office buildings for a living, and then worked on the assembly line at General Nutrition. But what we did have was a tremendous wealth of love. And my parents taught me the importance of other people and loving on other people, focusing on other people. My parents were outwardly focused people, they treated us as kids with a tremendous amount of dignity and respect. And I just grew up with an appreciation for other people, and I got that through my parents. I remember one story in particular. I was I went to Penn State University. I came home from, and it's, this is in the book. I came home from Penn State University, and my dad took me to the steel mill and to the garbage disposal, and said, "You got to get a job." And th- these are two places I'm taking you. And I ended up becoming a garbage man for the summer. And I have to tell you, that was one of the neatest summer jobs that I ever had. Was working with all these guys on the garbage truck. Yeah. And it was because of their personalities. They came to work every day, worked really, really hard, and it was. It was obvious to me that God loves us all the same. You know, I learned a tremendous amount that summer. So anyway, I went to Penn State University and graduated with a degree in accounting. And after four years, I worked for Price Waterhouse. After four years, I realized that, you know, wearing the green eye shade was not something that was for me long term, although (laughs) I had a tremendous learning experience. I went on to get an MBA. I was fortunate to get into Harvard Business School and moved to Boston for two years. Met all kinds of what I call future captains of America. It was really great. Looked around the room the first day and I realized that not only wasn't I the smartest guy in the room, but I was probably one of the dumbest guys <laughs> on a relative basis. It would look pretty bad. I remember coming home after one or two days there hoping that success was not all about brains because I was not about to you know, win that award. But I was fortunate to be there. And after two years in Boston, I took a job with a company called Trammell Crow Company. They were one of the larger real estate development firms in the world. And I took a job with them in L.A. And the reason I'm bringing this up, too, is it was the first time in my life, Kevin, that I ever worked for a person who I loved. He was fun. He was full of life. He treated everybody with dignity as if they mattered he was generous with his time, and he wanted us to be the best we could be. He was an amazing influence on my life. And I came to the realization that success is not defined by brilliance. It's defined by how you treat other people and the focus that you have on those other people. Because people work hard for leaders who care, who care about them. And I know you're going to talk more about this, but The book itself is really centered around that. Transfluence is really centered around that. But I'll stay with my career for a moment. And that is that I worked for Trammell Crow for about nine or 10 years. And then in the early 90s, everybody who was in the real estate business ended up trading business cards because most companies went bankrupt or weren't around after that. It was a real tough time in the industry. And I went to work for the company that ultimately I became CEO of 15 years later. And that is Prologis. And they were a startup company investing in industrial real estate, basically building and acquiring and owning warehouses. Not a glamorous business, but a tremendous business. And actually today, a really tremendous business. No one would have been able to see e-commerce back then. But now when you look at everything that you're clicking and buying, it's all coming from a warehouse and the business itself is booming. Strangely enough. And so, anyway, I was there for about 20 years, ultimately worked up the ranks of the company and became CEO after about 15 years with a very interesting story. If you've read the book, that's the crux of my career until I retired eight years ago.
0: I love it. I'm just so delighted that we're talking about caring about others. And that's why I think the book got me from the opening pages because it's the theme that runs throughout the book. And I had two things that were coming up for me. One is about your business experience. It's a little tangent, but I'd be curious. So you've come across people in the executive leadership ranks and they have not gotten it about this idea of caring and they're still operating on smartest person in the room wins. And I'd like to know if someone doesn't have the benefit of growing up around love and a message of loving others and caring for others, you know, or maybe have a broken family or what did you discover when you found these people who couldn't get out of their own way and the way they were treating? Like how did you mentor and coach somebody who had potential and they were smart as heck, but they just, they were all about themselves and they didn't know how to get with this idea that you have to be in some connection with yourself and caring and have an inner spirit of loving. How do, how do you get that? If it didn't happen in your childhood, is it it learnable teachable or. Yeah. I think
1: everybody probably has a different view on this. I do think you can teach it, but I don't think everybody gets it. If they don't want to get it in their heart, they won't. And I do have a story which I could tell, although I won't mention the person's name of, of an individual who worked for me who I loved and who was really one of the smartest people that I've ever met. And we had 360 degree evaluation. I hired a coach when I took over after I came back. The whole story is that I had to come back into a broken company uh, that was on the verge of bankruptcy. And we'll tell that story, I'm sure, down the road. But when I came back, there was a person who worked for me who was really tough on people was really very brutally, almost a curmudgeon in some respects, and lots of four-letter words with people walking in this person's office. And I hired a coach. And also, I had a dysfunctional team because when you're running a company, you come back to run a company on the verge of bankruptcy, there's a lot of dysfunction. So I hired a coach. And unfortunately, that coach was very transparent, or fortunately, very transparent with all of us. And brutally honest, and did extensive 360 degree evaluations of all of us. And we knew where we stood. And so, the answer to your question was transparency is it always wins. It always wins. And this person came into my office and he threw down his 360 degree evaluations from 20 people that told him that he was bullying people. And he told me he quit. And I told him I couldn't afford to lose him. And most times you can afford to lose somebody like that, but I couldn't. And I love I love this person. And I told him to go home and think about it and think about his job from the perspective of the difference that he could make in the lives of other people, as opposed to, can we survive as a company? In other words, don't wear our results on his shoulder, but go home and think about the influence that he could have with other people. He came back the next day and he embraced it and he said he would do it. He stood in front of all of our employees on one day when we webcast everything through Europe, through you know Asia, everybody was sleeping, but through Europe and in the US, and he cried, literally cried in front of the audience and told them that he wanted everybody to hold him accountable and he wanted to become a better leader. It was just absolutely stunning and amazing to me. And so I believe that certain people can embrace it, but they never will embrace it if you as a leader can't be transparent. And that's the problem is many leaders just don't want to lose a person. There are cultural vipers in your organization that you feel like you can't lose. But on the other hand, what you don't see is the 5 or 10% that it's taking out of every individual that's going into that person's office. And if you add up all of that discord, you realize that you have to get rid of that cultural viper or you've got to change them, right? I really think it's about confronting things that you don't want to confront being brutally transparent with people. And if they take the bait, great. And if they don't, it's probably the best thing that they move on.
0: I love it because that's my living. I mean, I'm a coach. I do the same thing. And what I have found is there's always a backstory to someone uh, that contributes to the way they're behaving in the present moment And so I have a phrase about the power of story. And just from the standpoint of being a great leader, you need time when you're engaging someone to just ask a few questions about who they are. Tell me your story. Like, okay, you know, and man, all of a sudden you can put all the dots together and you go, okay, now I've got the story, which by the way, is an act of caring that draws them in. I keep telling guys this. If you aren't genuinely interested, don't bother with this technique because it's phony then you're just doing another transaction to get something you want. But if you stop to care and you ask the story, you'll hear amazing stories and that sort of opens people up and then they're available for some coaching.
1: Evan, it's interesting you'd say that my daughter just told me this quote, it's be kind. Everyone is fighting a battle that you don't know. And I think part of it is learning what the battle is that someone's
0: battling. That's right. That's right. And that's why your book, Storms Raging, that guidepost, I think you nailed it because I have people in my coaching roster now who are putting together a picture of I have my act together. I call it imposter syndrome and there's books written about it. I have an episode on it. but. I tell them, I said, appropriate vulnerability can be one of the most attractive things. And when you told that story about the guy who had the courage to step up in front of, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people and try to express his awareness of wanting to change to the point of tears, it doesn't get any more vulnerable than that. It does not. I talk a lot in the book about pride
1: and fear, I think that the biggest problem that leaders have are actually within, actually, it's not just leaders, let's face it, let's just call all of us, right? Yeah, human. and so I try to lay out in the book that I think authentic pride is, is actually quite good. In other words, being prideful in your work, being prideful of the company that you work for, being prideful of things outside of yourself, right? But when it becomes hubristic pride, it's about vanity, it's about egotism, it's about arrogance, you know, it's about narcissism. In other words, when pride becomes about you, it becomes the problem. It's the same thing with fear. I think I say in the book, Taylor Swift used to always say, whether you like Taylor Swift or not, she used to always say, you know, she actually gets fearful before every single concert. And that fear actually causes her to do better because it makes her sharper. Some fear is actually good, but You know, the imposter syndrome that you talk about, when fear becomes about you, you're fearful about something. Then all of a sudden, you do some really bizarre things. And Harvard Business Review did this article about fears, leaders that fear. And they interviewed like 120 or so C suite executives throughout the world. You find the most amazing thing. They asked these leaders, What's your number one fear? And you might think, oh, the competition, or, you know, I fear my people leaving, or like, you know, I fear the financial well-being of the company, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Now, the number one fear was incompetence, the imposter syndrome. And C-suite executives talked about how it undermined their relationships with other executives. It's a fear of being wrong, or the fear of not having the right answer. And instead of being vulnerable, and instead of being open It led to dictatorial leadership or leaders that just didn't listen because they tried to jam their ideas through everybody, right? They feared that they might be wrong. They didn't want somebody to tell them they didn't ever have the right answer. So they said, this is what we need to do, right? This is it. I saw that in Technicolor. It was actually one of the reasons why I left the company the first time. The second thing is the fear of underachievement. Like, you know, we're not doing enough. A competitor is doing more when it caused leaders to take bad risks. Anyway, my point is this, when pride and fear become about you, whether it's incompetence, whether it's underachievement, whether it's narcissism, whatever it might be, that's where it
0: is really, really dangerous. Yeah, I heard it set up this way. It's one thing to be proud of one of your kids because they're doing well in school. It's an achievement that they have and you can be proud of them. It's another thing than to take that and go boast with the other parents because of how good it makes you look. It's like, oh, man, everybody, like, there it is. There it is. Look at me because that's my kid. Like, oh, man, oh, man. Penn State resonates in me. And I think I told you this when we talked, my son played football there from 2000 to 2004. And I can recall from the time he was little, he just had a, I don't know, an affinity for the athletics and the sports. And I got out of the way and I was conscious all the time of the vicarious thrill thing, right? So, so, and at one point I remember in high school him, maybe as a sophomore getting ready to, so he spiked the ball in the end zone. And I, said sometime after the game, I said, I really would appreciate it if you don't ever do that again, because I'll just come out of the stands and talk to you. It's not a good thing. And that's the only input I ever had. So fast forward, I have a highlight reel from a Penn State football game, 188,000 people, prime time, and Sean scores a touchdown. And he has this little moment he hasn't spiked the ball his whole college career and he has this moment because he's all juiced up and he as he's going down with the spike his hand slows down and eventually it comes a little doink and he immediately he's all his buddies are coming up to high five him he bends over paying no attention to them picks up the ball and hands it to the ref <laughs> it's the best ever. So while I'm proud of him and his accomplishment, I have that proud dad thing, mm-hmm. but what I'm proudest of is he's a really great man. He's a good dad, he's a really good husband, and that's what matters. And I give him the credit. I had my influence, I had my chance, right? <laughs> it's it's over. I have one other thing that came up when you were talking about teaching people to care and you gave this guy who was a dictator, maybe tyrant kind of guy, and he got this horrible feedback. I'm big about feedback. If I read another book disguising negative feedback with constructive feedback, I'm going to, you know, throw up. Negative feedback hurts. It should hurt. It's meant to hurt. And I would be curious If you have moments, if A, you buy that and B, if you have any moments where you got some negative feedback that you appreciated later, but didn't feel so good at the time. Oh my gosh. Yes.
1: And I've got a story for you. So that same coach who coached the one person I just talked to you about also coached me and he did a a terrific job. I mean, let me put it this way. I think the personality testing that we took, took at least two to three hours to do, if you can believe that. I mean, yeah, it was really very extensive. He did his 360s. He interviewed people outside of the organization, including our spouses, if you can believe that, to really try to get feedback on us. And at the time, I had come back to the company and I was running really, really hard. We were a global company. So just to put things into context, my average year was about 300,000 miles in an airplane. I generally traveled, four out of five days a week, sometimes five. So when I came back, let's just say it was a Friday, my first reaction was I needed to meet with all my direct reports because it was the only time I was going to be in our offices in Denver, which is where we were headquartered. And my coach sat down with me, one of the early meetings, and he said, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. I said, okay, well, give me the good news. <laughs> far, you know, like leaders, The good news is that people really enjoy working with you. And I said, terrific. I said, do I need to really know the bad news? He said, yeah. He said, Walt, your empathy scores could be higher. Now he was talking to a guy who actually always prided himself. There's that word again, pride, but prided himself in at least I thought the ability to get along with people, but that's not empathy. Getting along with people is one thing, but you cannot be empathetic unless you're spending time with people. My problem, and Kevin, you can imagine this as a CEO of a company and you're only home one day, when people saw me in the office in Denver, I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off, just bebopping from one person to another. And a lot of the feedback that came through, if I had to paraphrase it, it was, Walt is so busy that I don't feel like I can even walk into his office. Not that he'll shoo me out because he doesn't do that to people, but that I'll feel like I'm bothering him. So I won't. And my coach tells me that. And I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm stunned. I'm just like, wow, I don't feel like I'm doing that to people, but I guess I am. And he said, Walt, and you have to understand when I took over the company, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. Okay. So he said, he looks at me. He said, Walt, you're not the person that's going to turn this company around. Everybody else that works for you is. You are the person that needs to spend time with them. And I realized he wasn't just talking about my direct reports because people in accounting, IT, everybody saw me in the headquarters. So we put a plan in place. I mean, sometimes I think you have to be intentional about things. We put a plan in place to, in essence, increase my empathy scores. And it was all about listening. Something that I actually felt that I always did well, but just wasn't paying enough attention to. And I'll give you an example. One of the things, and there was a several point plan, but one of the things that I decided to do was we had a cafeteria. Instead of having lunch with the direct report, I'd go down in the cafeteria naked, if you will, and that I had nobody to have lunch with, right? And so the CEO walks in with nobody, which by the way is a message in and of itself. And I would tap the person on the shoulder who was in front of me in line. And I'd say, would you mind if I joined you for lunch? Or if there was a group, can I join you for lunch? And by the way, lunch is on me. I bought lunch every time and I'd sit down with people and I just started asking them about their families and didn't ask them a damn thing about the job. I got to tell you, it was really good for me to really just listen. That's just one small example, right? But I think too often as leaders, We get caught up trying to, if you will, save the company in my case. And really, it's just all about listening to people and gaining respect, building trust, which is what the book is all about. And it came to me through a coach. And it came to me when he told me that information, I was devastated. I got to tell you, I mean, I walked away from the meeting thinking, oh my God, not everybody thinks I'm perfect. And by the way, that's okay. (laughs) I don't have to be.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I get it. I had a similar thing when I was 37, and I got the feedback, and I was told in the group with my reports about the feedback that I was impatient and intimidating and unapproachable. I kind of did a little fist pound on the table. I said, I don't freaking believe it. My door's always open. I tell you every day, if you got an issue, come see me. <laughs> like yeah. and, and yeah. Can't
1: everybody. you hear me saying that?
0: <laughs> and the coaching guy goes, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. By the way, as an aside to that,
1: and I'm not saying this because you're a coach, I really, really believe in the value of coaching. I have come to believe that not enough people do it. And I do say in my book, I did it for the top roughly 10, 15 people. I would have done it much deeper into the organization had I had a little bit more time with it. And frankly, I have to tell you, 10 years ago, there wasn't as much emphasis on this sort of thing, employee well-being, quite frankly. And when you're trying to turn a company around that's on the verge of bankruptcy, it's actually not the first thing on your mind, although it should be. But had I stayed a little bit longer, we'd have done it much deeper into the organization. And I just believe in the value of it. It's just so important.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. You know what? For me, as happened, I've got three clients where I have been with them over 10 years. And over the 10 years, I probably averaged 70 people, even if it's uh, two or three sessions. Just, uh, you know, dig in and give them something to grab onto. But what happens is you get to know the culture and you get to know a lot of the people. And so you have a lot of data, a lot of info, a lot of insight, and you love them. This is something we started at the beginning of our discussion that I just want to make sure we underscore. This caring about people is the essence of it. I called it leadership by attraction it's the same thing. It's having something about you. Now, you also are reminding me there's something else, and I and I felt this in the book in the chapters after you, you laid down that guidepost about storms raging. I do a model, which is a psychotherapeutic model. It's not a replacement for psychotherapy. I don't call myself a therapist. It's called Voice Dialogue, and it's based on a Jungian model of the selves. And there's a, a aware ego that needs to sort of evaluate all your emotional content inside and listen to the voices. And the voices cluster in groups. And some of them are very strong and they become primary. And for all the big ones that are primary and they run your control panel, there's a whole bunch that got disowned and they're not available to you. And in our world, in the world you come in, and the guy who was driving you at that point before your feedback, we call them pushers. And in business, this pusher or performer or achiever, it's all the same. It has energy to it that is perceived and felt by the energies of other people. So, Long before you've asked anyone to tell a story, and in the moments they encounter you, you encounter them, and there's something happening beneath the surface, and your sensors are going off. And that's what I thought I was hearing when the description of you. I can picture you. I can picture your energy 100 miles an hour, and the energies of the other people are we do like them and care about them but he's really a busy guy, don't disturb him. And here's the most approachable, loving guy on the planet who had it from childhood, and without any idea it's happening, he's sending a message energetically. Leave me alone. Yes,
1: exactly. That message could work for a day, but it cannot work for weeks and a month. Therefore, people don't feel like they can communicate. Fortunately, he told me this early on, And it really raised my awareness early on in the process. And actually, it helped me to delegate more. It helped me to realize that it wasn't going to be my energy that got us through. It was going to be the collective energy of the group. I needed to galvanize it. I didn't need to live it. I needed to live it, but I didn't need to ignore everybody else in living it. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. The energy of the people goes up when... All you're doing is caring about them and saying, my job is to make sure you guys are cared for. If I do that, and then I'll throw strategy and vision on my platter, right? And then I'll deal with the board. That's what I do. And right now, forget about vision. It's says one word, survival. And so that's it. The rest of it is about caring. I think this topic is dead on and, you know, that's why I enjoyed that book. And it's talking to you so much. So I close out these interviews with a question. And the question is this. So you're, I don't know, 50, mid-50s, something. It doesn't matter. You're a little bit past halftime. And you turn around and you look back down and see young Walt as a Mm 23-year-old. If you could take what you now know and give him advice back when he was 23, what would you have told him?
1: Well, I'll get to the main tenets of the book. I don't think I knew that this at 23. And that is that as much as you think your life is about you, it's actually not. And it is about the influence that you can have on other people. And I think I would have been a little bit less about myself in my 20s and 30s and a little bit more about other people. I think when we're young, we're trying to build our careers We're trying to figure out who we're going to get married to. You know, we're trying to figure out there's so many questions in life that it becomes actually a life that is more interdimensional. It's just focused on yourself. And don't get me wrong. I was charitable when I was younger still and and all that good stuff. And, And I tried to do my best to be a little bit more outwardly focused, but I think I could have done even a better job of that. And I think if I look back on it, It's sort of like this whole notion that, you know what, Walt, it's all going to be okay. And the more that you can get out of your own way and just love people, appreciate them, show them how much you appreciate them and make your world more about them than you do yourself, the better person you will be and the better leader that you will become. I think in looking back on that, that's probably what the advice I would give myself would be.
0: That's awesome advice. In the advice category, how would you advise someone, what's a requirement about oneself that you have to have in order to really genuinely have energy to love and care about others? What must be happening within yourself? Yeah, well, I think accountability is part of it. And
1: for me, everybody is different in this regard. But for me, it's my faith. I feel like I'm accountable to someone that is larger than life. And that accountability drives me now like it didn't drive me as much in my 20s to do things that are outside of myself. And I'm not perfect at it. But when I wake up every morning and I spend time focusing on my creator, and the more I sit there. And the more I dwell, the less I become about myself. And I think that accountability is critically important to me. It was there in my 20s, but it wasn't nearly as strong or deep or wide as it is today.
0: I'd love to close our discussion on that. I think it's an excellent place because I believe it. I've helped a lot of people manage inner turmoil and childhoods that were difficult, and they're covering up and hiding wounds and learning to let them out. But I tell them, I can only get you so far because there's a much, much bigger thing we're playing in and a much bigger love than anything any human is ever going to manage. And that's God for you. And having the touch with it, will add to your healing in ways all the therapists in the world could never do. And it's very, very powerful. Well, you're blowing my mind. I would love to chat with you forever. I hope to continue to stay connected with you in the years because you definitely have something very unique and special, and it's brought a lot to a lot of people. And I couldn't be happier than to have met you. I think I have to give a shout-out to it was Tim. right? Tim Geis, our mutual friend, or was it Dale? Dale Dawson. Dawson. Yeah, Yeah. Dale Dawson. That's what I meant, Dale. A shout out to Dale, who is another amazing guy, good halftime guy. So tell us about the book and where people can learn about the book, or I don't know if you've got a website going for it, but I want you to have a chance to tell people where they can learn more.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, the book itself is called Transfluence, and if you try to look Transfluence up in the dictionary, you won't find it. I can't believe we actually created a word. That nice. Is well done. <laughs> it actually sounds like it's a real word. There is a word Transfluent, but not with a C-E, but with a T at the end. And it actually means something that flows through, kind of like water would flow past you, if you will, in a stream. And so Transfluence, my team and I like to say is something very similar because it needs to flow through the heart of a leader. So what it stands for is transformational influence. And I believe as a leader, you've got a lot of objectives to accomplish, but your most important one is the influence that you have on those that you lead. Make it transformative. And it starts with the notion that it's not about you, but it is about, again, the transformational influence you have on others. So that's what the book's about. My website is waltrakowich.com. It's W A L T. Rakowich.com. you could go there the book is sold on amazon you can buy it and i should say some retailers it's hard to say who all carries it these days in, in a post-covid world and who doesn't i haven't been to one recently but you should be able to find it on amazon you can certainly buy it through my website that's where you can find me as well
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Walt. I absolutely appreciate your time with us today. This is another episode of Sheer Clarity, the podcast for Leaders by Attraction. Again, you can learn more at jkevinmccue.com or sheerclarity.com. And stay tuned. We'll be back again soon with another episode of Sheer Clarity and more discussions with top leaders about becoming a leader by attraction.